All right. All right. Oh, so <clears throat> mosquito bites. <clears throat> Sinking. Three, In three, two, two, two one. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> that was good. We're so good at that. Got skills. I'm not even sure how it helps, Aaron. We often don't say it at the same time. I'm sure he'll give us feedback. It's for his file that he keeps on us. <laughs> how many times we sink? One episode is just us trying to sink. <laughs> he did, Kathy, after our very first season, he he released a like behind the scenes thing. He sent it, he sent it just to us first. But he was like, if you guys want to, and it was like all of the pre-show nonsense oh and like the multiple failed sinking attempts and like all, Not yeah, bad. it was hilarious. Yeah, Only for us, I'm sure. But... <laughs> Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode number 267. I'm J.R. Forsteros. I'm Kathy Kong. And I'm Matt Michalotis. On this week's show, we are going to be tackling some of the most common objections to pursuing racial justice, uh, specifically objections that we hear inside the church. But first, uh, have y'all been following what's been going on in quantum computing lately? Every no. day. Duh. Uh, well, <laughs> There's first an of all, this on is on my phone. This isn't even what I wanted to share about, but but uh, a group in Europe has created the first quantum computing programming language, which is going oh. to make it easier for uh, anyone to be able, and I say anyone, probably not me, <laughs> um, but like it, it'll make it easier for scientists to program quantum computers. So much like we have things like BASIC or C++ um, or HTML that help us navigate you know, our computers of the web. Now there's, now there's an actual, it's the first quantum computing programming language created, which is super What's it cool. called? Slick. S-L-I-Q. Slick. Or Silk. Silk. S-I-S-I-L-Q. It's Silk, I think. Okay. It's better than Slick, I guess. Yeah. But. But. That's, that's cool because it lets more things like this happen. Um, Recently, physicists were managed to use a quantum computer to reverse the flow of time at the quantum level. What? Yes. What do you mean? How like did they, they reverse it? What does that mean? Like uh, a quark went backwards? Yes. What? Essentially, yeah. So so now they're, they're saying, of course, this is only at the quantum level. Right. Um, You'd have to be and, very small for this to work for you. <laughs> for now. Again, it's all for now, right? Um, and it's only for a few seconds. So this isn't going to be yet. It's not going to be time travel or anything. But it did make me think of an interesting question. If you were able to rewind time, but say only for 10 seconds, what is what what is the best thing that you would use that ability for? For me, I think it would be cooking eggs. My wife loves sunny side up eggs or over easy eggs and uh, a fairly more often than occasionally, but not regularly, I break them when I'm trying to flip them. So if I could, if I broke an egg and I could just like rewind time 10 seconds to try it again, I think that would be amazing. It'd make me the perfect breakfast chef. So that's uh, probably the best use I can think of for rewinding time 10 seconds. Wow. What about you? Oh, um, I guess I wouldn't have to have a filter on what I say so much. That'd be nice. 
you could float an idea and see how it how it hits. Oh, I could just say whatever I wanted at all times, and then I'd have ten seconds to regret it and pull it back if it was too much. Or I could just say stuff that I really, really want to say to certain people, you know. Uh, and then I would get to see the response, and then none of the consequences. I could go back the ten seconds. I would need more than ten seconds. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. It have to be fast. Wow. <laughs> That is not enough time. I would rewind time for something far more trivial when I do my own nails, which is all the time. I would, if I, you know, that like accidental, just nicked the wet nail polish, Mm -hmm. I would go back 10 seconds. See, I think that's great. Yeah. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical this is true. And do you know why? 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 Because five years ago, you told me we'd have dinosaurs by today. (laughs) Uh, I I did not say that. I was relating what scientists told me. Exactly. They they burned us once, and now you're just going to go right into, like, (laughs) Back to the Future. Well, I mean, if we're talking about how many times we've been burned, we still don't have flying cars. So I mean, yeah. Well, and this is when I really miss Clay, when we talk about (laughs) science. Yeah. Right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. He's like, didn't you ever listen to Adventures in Odyssey? We've had time travel forever. You can go right back to the time of Jesus. Whenever you want. It's true. I can't wait for that. And uh, Kathy, have you and Peter watched Devs yet? I have. I Well, Peter and Bethany have watched Devs, and I was in the room. like Uh, i wasn't really paying attention but enough to like know what was happening and went oh this is crazy yeah Uh, again it's more fun with quantum computing so this is why i'm so excited about all of this because the 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 new possibilities are are relatively endless i think so but yeah matt it remains to be seen what kind of fruit the seed will bear I mean, if we can't make dinosaurs, we can just keep going back ten seconds at a time until we find them. I don't know if I don't know if you can daisy chain it like that. We'll, we'll see. Science. We'll Go find out. It out. <laughs> uh, that okay. Fine. One more interesting question about time, since we're talking about time travel now. Uh, if you could time travel to any one period and place, mm. where would you go? Oh. You can go back. You can come back, but it's only one. Hmm. It's totally a clay question. It's hard not to say something in the Bible. Is um, it? I know. I was like, that didn't, it, that was actually not in my mind. I also, okay. <laughs> hard for me. Hard for me. I would Where love to would get you to go hang in the Bible. Well, you know, it'd be very interesting to hang out with Jesus. Um, I hear Sodom and Gomorrah was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, warmer by the lake. Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah, I think there's lots of cool stuff. The the showdown on Mount Carmel, as folks know, is one of my favorite Bible stories. So I think it'd be cool to see that. Or I don't think arc. it'd be fun to hang. <laughs> yeah. The arc, right? Like which <laughs> animals be... actually, how did that work? Try to be number nine on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, even just getting to experience life in I, I just read I just finished a book uh, this week that IVP just put out called a, a Week in the Life of Ephesus, and it was it was a narrative sort of reimagining of what it would have been like to live in Ephesus around the time the Revelation to John was written, and it was it was really interesting to just try to imagine living in that time, you know. 
I can introduce hand soap and become a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> a millionaire in ancient money, though. Well, yeah, a millionaire in denarii. I don't know. Anyway. We'll have many camels. <laughs> yeah. What about what about you two? Where okay, not in the Bible. Where would you go? Um, I was thinking some time around my family. Like oh. I I'd love to actually meet my great grandmother who was alive when I was born. And um and I, you know, I met her as an infant, but did not know her. So I think some something around my family, I would love to go back in time and have an opportunity to interact with the ancestors. Wow. Assuming That's that cool. I would be fully fluent. Right. Right? There's a lot of issues related to those yeah. sorts of things, right? Yeah. That's what you guys both have such good answers. My, I, I just want to go to like medieval times and see some actual knights do some damage. <laughs> I think that's that's about it. And you so, know, dragons. There's dragons and like um, you know, magicians and things. That's cool. What like? Would you go to England? Would you go to Gaul? I don't even know. England might be good. What if I? What if I met the guy that they based King Arthur on? That'd be cool. I don't think he lived in England. I think he was. What did he? I don't know. He's from like this, the sixth this, century uh, or something like that. This is the problem. You go back in history. You don't want to meet your heroes, right? <laughs> I guess if you're going back 10 <laughs> seconds at a time, you could trace the legends all the way back to their source. Yeah, that's right. Who told you that? <laughs> it was Jimmy, the blacksmith, 10 <laughs> seconds ago. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's a fun conversation that we didn't really plan for, but love to hear your answers on that. Um for now, though, we're going to actually talk about something way more serious, uh, and that is race and ideology. So, uh, sure turn. Know. Race and <laughs> ideology. Usually, I'm on it with the uh, segues, but I just couldn't think of one now. So, as King Arthur would say. <laughs> um, so we're talking about this issue because uh, there is a lot of conversation and happening around race right now. And whenever that happens, there are some particular uh, responses that are brought up in defense of the current status quo. Right. And so we thought it would be helpful to kind of zoom out to 30,000 feet and look at what these responses are, how they're functioning, and then dive into a few and, and kind of work through them. So um, have either of you read the book Racism Without Racists by Edward Bar uh, Bonilla Silva? No. No. Have you? Uh, my, my, yeah, my little book okay. club on race read it together. Uh, it's interesting because it's a textbook, so it's, it's pretty dry, but it was probably one of the top two or three books that we read that helped us like kind of navigate the conversations around race that we're experiencing on a daily basis. And the biggest idea for me that came out of the book uh, was, was really being able to identify racial ideology. So I'm just going to read a couple of the things that he says in the book um, that were sort of definitions. Cause I don't know about y'all, but for me, the word ideology has always been one of those words that like I hear and I don't really know what it means, but it kind of hangs out in a group with a bunch of other words that seem like they're important. And so I just sort of nod along with it. Yep. 
so yeah, so was, I found it really helpful to for him to break this down. So um, Bonilla Silva said the racial uh, an ideology, a racial ideology specifically, is a racially based framework used by actors. And when he talks about actors, he's talking about people, like people acting in the world, right? So it's it's a it's a racially based framework that we use to explain and then either justify if we're the dominant culture or challenge if we're the subordinate culture, the racial status quo. So racial ideologies aren't good or bad. They they are, and they can be used either to support or to uh, challenge the, the status quo. But one of the important observations he makes is that an ideology is a political instrument, not an exercise in personal logic. And I think that's one of the things as we dive into a lot of these that we'll see is the, I mean, and Kathy, uh, we were even talking about this in a private message earlier. People say things that are ideological responses that if you poke on them even a little bit, they don't even make sense. Right. Right. They're full yeah. of self-contradiction. And, 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 and you think you, we think to ourselves and we even say to each other, like, how can someone say that? How can someone think that? Um, and Bonilla Silva's point is it's because it's coming from an ideological place. Right. So it's more of like a reflex or a defense than a, a, a thought through logical, coherent idea. So, so like would an example be, so we have Black Lives Matter, which is actually a phrase that doesn't just mean Black Lives Matter, right? So that mm -hmm. like it's talking about violence, particularly against black people, particularly state enforced violence, mm -hmm. um, at least in its original, you know, meaning. Mm -hmm. And then we have like the response of Blue Lives Matter, which is uh, saying like, oh, police officers, their lives matter also. But it's actually a critique or an attempt at critique of Black Lives Matter. Like, would those be political? Yeah. Or, and uh, even All Lives Matter. And All Lives Matter. So these are right? all three of those would be an example of some version of racial ideology. Is that correct? Correct. That's correct. Right. Okay. And, and again, then you ask, are these supporting the status quo or are these challenging the status quo? And then again, I mean, with all three of those examples, you can point at the fact that a lot of people use all three of those phrases without really understanding what they mean, without really understanding the issues at play. You know, and if you put someone on the spot who's using them kind of quickly, some some folks can start to get to the place where they're stammering or kind of talking in circles uh, because, again, they haven't really thought it through. They're just employing it. Not everyone who uses the freight, right? Some people are using them pretty intentionally with thought behind them, but a lot of folks are using them as an ideological reflex. Right. So, like, I, I actually had a post recently where we talked about Black Lives Matter, and I think a pretty, like, low-key, not offensive way, and there was someone who responded and said, why are you trying to create yeah, uh, saw that. Why are you trying to? Why you're being divisive, right? Um, and, and said, why can't? Why do we need all this talk about whether to say Black Lives Matter or what it means and blah blah blah? Can't we just say All Lives Matter? Isn't that what Jesus would say? Which is like multiple ideological responses all in one. I think he wasn't yeah. actually engaging with the content. He was saying, I disagree with you for some vague political reason. Here's a bunch of stuff. I'll throw it at the at the wall. Mm -hmm. and, and I think even more importantly. There wasn't anything in his comment that you thought, oh, that's a unique idea that I have not heard before. No, no. Right? I mean, it wasn't all, reasoned at all. It was literally just like, here's five phrases. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's the other important piece of Bonilla Silva's definition that really resonated with, with our little book club group. Um, he said, Ideal ideologies like grammar are learned socially and therefore the rules of how to speak properly come quote unquote naturally to people socialized in particular societies. Thus, whites construct their accounts within the frames, styles and stories in colorblind America in a most, mostly unconscious fashion. 
Right. So I think that's that unconscious piece is a really important part of what happens when we talk about ideologies. People aren't sitting down and saying, okay, I want to center whiteness in the way I think and feel. So what is the best way for me to respond to this such that I make sure that white people and white issues are at the center of this conversation? Right. It's yeah. it's unconscious and we learn it the same way we learned grammar. Right. And, and if you've ever learned a foreign language, you know this people who learn foreign languages in a classroom right. uh, have way better grammar than people who learn it just by being in. So so when I went to Germany, I, I had had five years of German German in junior high and high school. When I graduated, I got to go to Germany for three weeks. And while I was there, I became friends with a, another American woman who had literally just gone to study abroad, didn't know a lick of German, and just lived with a family and learned German in three months just from hearing it all the time. So my grammar was better than hers because I'd studied all the rules, right? But she just learned it kind of... Um, on the fly, on the fly, right? She just kind of absorbed everything, and that's that's how most of us learned our first language, right? We learned it on the fly, and we absorbed it, and we we yeah. can't tell you why the the red big ball sounds bad and the big red ball sounds good, right? It just does, and but there are actual rules. We just never yeah. learned them. We we just learned what sounds right, and that's how I, racial ideology is. A lot of us just learn the things that sound quote unquote normal and natural, but they're not normal and natural. They're a function of power, and they're they're a political tool that's either used to challenge or justify the status quo. So how do we notice? How do we notice this at work? Like how do we recognize it in ourselves or people around us when that's what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I think the two things we've already covered that are super important are one is watch for watch for a script, right? If you start talking about race in public spaces or even, you know, if you just honestly, I think if you just start talking about race at all, you'll start to notice the same phrases and same responses and reactions coming up over and over and over and over. And the weird part for me is that they're they're not even like variations on a theme. It's like word for word, the same kind of responses, which we're going to talk about a bunch of them in a minute. But I, for me, I think as soon as I start seeing a bunch of people reacting in the same way, uh, I, I start to wonder if there's an ideological response at play. Um, and the as other we're one, yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Kathy, well, please. and as we're talking, I'm thinking, Oh, racial ideology. And then within the church, there's the theology, right. That we learn mm-hmm. that we think is completely separate from this racial ideology, but it's not. <laughs> no. Um, the other the other thing that I tend to see is uh, it just doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? So that script is repeating those same words, but when it is used in the context of a conversation, it actually doesn't make any sense. So like you were saying earlier, it doesn't take long for you to kind of pop and press and things get very confusing um, for the person responding in that ideology. So I was, um, we had been talking before we hit record. I had this really confusing interaction online with somebody in the community here who presents as a white man, but is Jewish. And I was trying to explain to him how white supremacy works. And his response was that I was anti-white. 
And, <laughs> and, and so I kept... So you said white supremacy exists. His, here's how it works. And he said, right. why do you hate white people? Yes. Basically. Why do you hate white people? And <laughs> then went on to say that he doesn't see color. Mm. But then also said he's a white Jewish man. Right. So what is what does he mean when he's saying he doesn't see color? Right. If he then goes on to explain his own racial and ethnic identity. Identity. And yeah, then assume what I'm talking about is anti white. Right. As if that's a bad thing. Right. But theoretically he shouldn't even be able to see color, right? Which he doesn't, apparently. <laughs> apparently, but only when I'm talking about white supremacy, then that makes me anti-white. Yeah, that's confusing. Yes. Well, uh, so so we wanted to kind of do two things in this episode. Um, now that we've kind of introduced the idea of ideology, we want to identify several of the common ideological responses to race that we see happening in specifically evangelical conversations, though some of them spill over. Uh, so we're not we're not necessarily going to talk about all of the ones that we see at large. We're going to talk specifically about ones we see in the church and, and poke a little bit at them and talk about why they don't make sense or why they're problematic. Because again, I think if you're new to this conversation, it might be one of those issues where I know that that's not right, but I'm not sure I can articulate why that's not right. So we're going to we're going to work through those and try to help uh, articulate them. And then we're gonna, at the end, we're going to talk more about how we respond to ideological claims. Because again, uh, when someone makes an ideological claim, they're not actually trying to have a rational argument with you, right? Ideology, yeah. ideological responses aren't rational. So you, it doesn't matter if if we present our facts and all of that, right? So so I think we need to think through a little bit um, when we see these things happening. What are the ways that that we respond well to them? Uh, so first up. <laughs> 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 I don't see race or uh, an even more fun one. I'm colorblind. Yeah. Um, right. And this is one that usually comes up when someone says something like, um, well, there, there's an implication of prejudice, right? Like, Hey, why, why did you treat person this way? Is it because they're black? No, all no no, I'm colorblind. I don't, I don't even see race. Like that's not even something I'm considering. Right. Where else does that come up? Yeah. I think the other one that I didn't even think about, it just popped in my head now, but the only race is the human race. Ah, uh, yes. yes. Right. Um, so, so again, I think, I think what people are wanting to express is if we just treat everyone the same, then there won't be any racism. Well, and to be fair, I think um, in the church in the 80s and 90s, this was kind of set out as the appropriate progressive way to look at race, uh, right. at least where I was. Um, so there are people who've adopted this and said like, oh, yeah, that was really hard for me to uh, accept. And then now they're being told, actually, that's insufficient that that's it's actually damaging and they're like i don't understand what do you want from me like so which is interesting um 
So do we want to respond to each of these a little bit about what the underlying ideology, like the problematic piece of the underlying ideology? I think we should, yes. Christian standpoint? Okay. Um, I'd say on this one, I think a really easy one, and I brought this up in my conversation, my friend who said, uh, wouldn't Jesus just say all lives matter? Um, I was like, okay, Jesus does think all lives matter. But the great story we have from the book of Acts, where the Greek widows weren't being fed. And as you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to issues of Greeks not getting their food. Um, so, so what happens is the Greek, the Greek widows, the Hellenistic Jews aren't being fed. So there's a cultural divide there and theological, probably philosophical. These are people that some people saw as traitors. Um, and they probably looked different. Uh, there was some ethnic difference. Um, Anyway, they're not getting fed, the widows, when they're handing out the food. The problem is brought to the apostles, and they say, we really should be preaching. Let's put some people in charge to take care of this. And the names of all the people they put in charge are listed. They become deacons, and they are all either Hellenistic or Greek names. So they go to the community that's being overlooked, that's being wronged, and they put that community in charge of the distribution of food. Now the colorblind answer would have been, uh, the Greek widows aren't getting their food. And you would have said, everyone should get their food. Uh, but instead all widows said, matter, all widows matter. Right. But they said, this is a specifically Greek issue. Like it's against the Hellenistic Jews. And so let's put the Hellenistic Jews in charge of the food distribution and they won't be getting slighted any longer, which is, I mean, it's a really different solution than uh, I think white evangelicalism feels super comfortable with is saying, let's put the wronged party in charge and let them decide what is right in this situation. Does that ever happen in the church? I I feel like, like what I'm thinking about this, right? Biblical model, right? Well, yes, but I'm trying to think, I don't... I can't think of a time where I've ever seen that actually happen. No. And I mean, on, and not just on race, right. Uh, abuse, axes, right. Like, yeah. Sexual abuse. We have someone like Rachel Den Hall yes. who's doing amazing work and should just be put in charge of a bunch of stuff and people are fighting her. Yep. Um, I mean, some allegations came out yesterday that people are trying to defend a, a certain pastor for some decisions he made. Rachel Den Hollander puts out 10 tweets saying, here's the situation. Let's lay it out. Like she has an insider's awareness of what's going on. Um, yeah, but who's in charge? All the same people who were in charge when they didn't notice the abuse or, uh, 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 you know, swept it under the rug in the past, but I'm getting better. I'm learning. Right. Right. The best, everyone knows the best way to learn is in a position of authority. Oh my gosh. In public, if possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, I don't see race. I'm colorblind, uh, prevents us from seeing systemic issues like the Greek, uh, the Greek widows not getting food. Uh, and it prevents us from dealing with the issue in an appropriate way, potentially. And I think my, oh, go ahead, Kathy. Well, please. and I, I always found that phrase so interesting. I'm colorblind as if that is what the ideal is because mm-hmm. right aside from the conversations around race why would not being able to see the diversity of god's creation be considered 
a positive? How is it, right, that only in the context of people would we claim being blind to the differences be a good thing while we talk about seeing the differences in creation being a positive thing? So that also never made sense in the theologically (laughs) when we talked only about the human race, (laughs) that somehow we're all supposed to be the same. And for me as a woman, never being treated the same. Oh, can you imagine if people were gender blind? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, I'm I'm going to start saying that. I'm gender blind. I'm blue, red, colorblind, and it's a defect. Right. It it causes trouble. Um, I bought a purple truck in college thinking it was blue. Oh, bummer. uh, It it communicated something different than I intended. (laughs) Bummer. (laughs) Okay. All right. I got another one. Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. It's a sin problem, not a skin problem. Mm, mm, <sighs> mm. It's deep. And I'm it's just going to keep groaning. So, no, <laughs> Kathy's exasperated sides are what I live for. I'm just. <laughs> I wish you could hear him more often. <laughs> and if you could see me, like I'm just, I'm my is it eyes. A full body just, slouch? It is. I'm like, I, my eyes just rolled into the back of my head. I'm kind of like. Ugh. Okay, why, Kathy? Why? Well, one, so this actually speaks to a very Western theology, right? That Mm. it is very individualistic. Mm. And that somehow because it's an individual heart issue, (laughs) we can't judge. And so we just have to depend on Jesus. Right? God is God knows what's going on in that person's heart, which is really interesting because we never talk about it that way around other sins. <laughs> right. right. Sexual sin. We make sure people wear clothing a certain way, mostly women. I mean, what am I talking about? Only women. <laughs> we only regulate how women dress because that sin problem. Even though it's in the eyes and hearts of men, somehow women have to cover our skin. So that idea of it's an individual problem um, makes it such that we don't need to talk about it as a community. We don't need to address how this actually has impacted every single layer of existence. Well, this is related, isn't it? Is this is the core idea of this is what leads us to the comments like um, we don't need to deal with something like systemic racism. If we focus on the gospel, all these things will be taken care of. Right. Let go. Let go. We don't do that with abortion. Right. It's not like focus on the gospel. Abortion will be fine. No. But with race, we. Yeah. Right. Or marriage on the gospel. It'll be okay. Yeah. Well, and I think. When, when I hear people say these things, I, I press on them and I say, if you think that racism is a sin problem that is solved by salvation, then you have to say that every single person who is involved in the North Atlantic slave trade, including people like George Whitfield and Cotton Mather, who were well-loved proto-evangelical preachers, 
were not Christians. Right? Or, or otherwise they wouldn't be they if that if that's the, they had slaves. They just were yeah. sinful. Right. And, 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 and that's it. Like, that's what I press on. As I say, you can't like, you can't say that this is just a matter of the heart. And I am troubled by the reality that I think someone can be working out their salvation and also be a participant in a deeply sinful institution like chattel slavery. But I think the solution to that is not to say, well, this is all a matter of the heart. I think a better solution to that might be to say, if that's true, then it's entirely possible, maybe even, dare I say, probable, that I, as a person in the contemporary world who's working out my salvation with fear and trembling, is maybe participating in some deeply unjust and sinful institutions. Mm -hmm. And maybe instead of trying to baptize and whitewash my racist predecessors, I need to be searching out my own spirit and searching out my own culture for those institutional sins that I may be be blind to. Right. Well, and it, it's not that it isn't a sin problem, right? It, it, it is a sin Like, yeah. it is. But when it's used in that way, it often is trying to dismiss the systemic issues, to dismiss how institutions continue to support this sin, and specifically how Christians and the institution of the evangelical church continues to participate in this sin. And then it's often then tied in with the, I don't see race. (laughs) So that's also why it's not a skin problem, because you don't see race. And Kathy, I think your observation that this is a this is a function of our Western modern culture and philosophy is on point. <laughs> Evangelicalism is, is a religion that is born out of modernity, yeah, and it's so individualistic uh, that yeah, I think I think we I think we in general have difficulty seeing institution at work anywhere. Uh, whether it's in, again, the sexual abuse that's rampant in evangelicals, uh, churches, in race, and in any area. We just, we struggle to see things at an institutional level ever. Um, and I think that, I think that you're absolutely right that this is a manifestation of that inability for evangelicals to think institutionally. Yeah, but JR, I just feel like all your examples are from like, 50 years ago, and we shouldn't dwell in the past, like what my grandparents did shouldn't reflect on who I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Next that, phrase, we shouldn't dwell in the past for 100. <laughs> that, you know, that one's in, again, like you said, right? I've never owned a slave. Uh, this was all in the past. Um, no one living today participating in all that. I think a real issue with that is that we are pretending that emancipation fixed racial injustice or uh, very generously <laughs> that the civil rights legislation of the 1960s fixed it. Right. And, and no one's racist anymore. Um, and when that's I, not true, like well, we've never addressed those things. Sorry, Kathy. Oh please. no, absolutely. And I agree. And again, as Christians, if we shouldn't dwell in the past, why do we spend so much time in scripture? Ooh, <laughs> zing, man. Right? Like, if that wow. all happened a long time ago, or depending on how you read science, maybe not as long ago. <laughs> but 
Why well, even we, Jesus, though, we're talking almost 2,000 right. years, right? Why do we dwell in the lessons that were taught 2,000 years ago? What does that have to do with my life now in 2020 when <laughs> I can Google whatever I want? <laughs> That's what my atheist friends say. Why does your Bronze Age morality have anything to do with me? No. So Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think, too, we don't actually know our past very well. Like even just some of the things we've been saying just now, like uh, the the private school movement Ugh. was started. That's not that long ago Ugh. by Christians. I went to private school my whole life uh, through high school, and that movement was started by people who opposed uh, the reversal of segregation. Yeah. So it was literally a, a. I mean, today we would certainly say it was a racist motivation in creating Christian schools. Uh, and homeschool, the same thing, right? As well, not, not like homeschool didn't already exist, but the, the homeschool movement in Christianity comes out of a similar motivation. That doesn't mean everyone's racist who goes to, you know, a Christian high school or anything like that, but it means there's systemic original issues in these organizations that may be influencing the way certain things happen today. And, and again, that points back right to our inability to think systemically, if, if I don't personally harbor ill will or ill feelings toward persons of color, then it, then I am not, I'm not racist, even though I'm participating in an institution that has its roots in racism. Right. And I think you start looking at it and you're like, well, do public schools have any roots in racism? Uh, yeah, yes. sure. <laughs> uh, so it's not like saying Christian schools are evil because of this. It's like, well, let's be aware of it. And if it's a sin issue, like knowing the past illuminates our present sometimes. You know, another thing that uh, Edward Bonilla Silva says in Racism Without Racists is he says uh, that he finds it. I didn't I didn't pull this quote out, so I'm just going to paraphrase him. He says that he doesn't uh, he doesn't waste his time going on what he calls racist hunts and trying to figure out who's a racist and who's not, because uh he said, one, that just gets people defensive right away. Uh, and two, he thinks it's actually not the right kind of question to ask. He said he prefers to say, since we all live in a racialized world, how has how has living in a racialized world shaped us? I think you'd say the same about education. Instead of arguing which is more racist, public or private education, we could say, how does the fact that we live in a racialized world impact the way we're educating children? Right. And then that lets us talk about all of the issues in both the public and the private sector in ways that we can, instead of saying you're, you're more racist than me or I'm more racist than you, saying we all recognize that race, racism is impacting our public education. Let's all work together for, um, for a better, you know, better education. Less well, and it impacts everyone, right? That's the, that's the thing, the point that's missed is that racism actually has a negative impact on white children, yeah. white yeah. people. Yeah. So we don't talk about that, but a little bit tied still as we move forward. Let's the whole dwell in the past thing just irks me because it is often only again around race when we talk people say, well, we shouldn't dwell in the past, particularly around chattel slavery. And then I think, well, then why do we talk about the past when you want to say your ancestors came here the right way? Yep. 
and followed the rules when in the past there were no rules. Right. That's, <laughs> I, I think that's a really important point, Kathy. Like white, white folks can get really defensive. I include myself uh, at different things as we're learning uh, about some of this that we go like, you're saying that I'm evil and that I did all these terrible things to other people. But the fact is the system is spiritually corrosive on the oppressor as well as the oppressed. It's mm-hmm. self-harm also. And there, there can be some compassion for that. It's not, it's not just you harm these other people, but look at what we've done to ourselves too. Right. Uh, and, and I think, and that's what, you know, this last week there was this whole brouhaha about, a pastor saying maybe instead of white privilege, we should say white blessing, <sighs> which I'm sure you heard, but what he's trying to get at is like, it was a net gain for white people. And we, for, you know, we need to recognize it was a curse to black people, but there were some things that we got out of it. So he's trying to say white privilege, uh, but he's implying God's involvement. And also he's completely, unaware then of the damage that was done to a lot of majority culture people and white people through the institution of slavery too. Right. And I I think it, so it's a, it's a really unfortunate term that does not communicate anything he wanted it to. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) And I don't think it's catching on as an ideology. It was pretty roundly denounced by people on all sides. Thank goodness. goodness. (laughs) And, And again, I just want to follow up on that and say, you know, what, what, when we talk about this, we're not trying to again say, oh, see, white people have it worse. Uh, poor white people. It's more no. of what, what Bonilla Silva was saying, which is we all live in a racialized world. Racism hurts all of us. That's right. So rather, rather than trying to, um, it's, I don't know. We're all in this together, right? We all are trying to build a better world that's going to be better for everyone. And we don't, we shouldn't let, we shouldn't let ourselves be pitted against each other. Um, when, when we're, we're all trying to do what is good. And I, I, it's a very biblical principle that when you care for the most vulnerable, it's good for the, for everyone. I mean, that's, that's how God designed everything. What? So. That's in the Bible? <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Shoot. So many Bible things. <sighs> okay. Uh, I have another one. Yeah. Uh, okay. This one I hear from a lot of white people and specifically white pastors. When we talk about engaging conversations about race in the church, uh, white pastors and people will say, well, my church isn't in a diverse area. So we shouldn't. So you know, you're it off just, the hook. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's, they wouldn't say it like that. Right. But that's the, that's the thing. We don't have a lot of people of color in our congregation because our community is 95% white. Um, and again, they'll pull out the census data and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. you know, we don't preach about racism or, or all that kind of stuff because it's just not something people in our area deal with. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, uh, white people don't deal with racism except for the fact that they may be they may be racist. And I think, you know, I we live in a community that is about 95% white and attended a predominantly white church and the phrase is always, well, our door is open to anyone. <laughs> and if you never ask the question of why is my community 95% white? Why are only, you know, 5% of small businesses owned by non-white people? Um, Why is this church not welcoming to that 5%? Then, yeah, you, it will never become more diverse. It will never become more diverse. 
I think two things also like, so a church that I used to attend here in the Portland area, that was their kind of go-to phrase at Mm -hmm. one point Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, And a pastor came along, a new pastor and said, why is our vision statement that we're trying to reach this entire county for Christ, but we only have white people in our church? And he was white. Uh, And basically he shamed them by saying, maybe we should change our vision statement to say, we're trying to reach all the white people. Uh, And and they were like, oh, no, 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 we can't say that. And he's (laughs) like, well, it it appears to be true though. Uh, And kind of forced them to reevaluate if they were following their actual vision. And they realized they weren't. And the next largest ethnic population was Korean. So they hired a Korean pastor and, and they had a pretty thriving Korean congregation in very little time that was a part of their church. Uh, and then they kind of went from there to try and at the very least make their church match the demographic of where they were, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really cool. On the flip side, I would say like, let's imagine there's a church that's a hundred percent white in a hundred percent white town. Uh, like uh, because, white settlement, Texas, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's literally no people of color there. Like mm-hmm. none. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, that guy has brown hair. He seems weird. Um, what is that church's mission? Is it not the great commission? Do they still do international missions? Uh, are they still concerned about the state of the world? And if they are, then why would they not also be concerned about the state of their nation or, or the state of their, uh, of their county or their state? Like, it seems to me that even if you're in a ethnic, uh, a monolithic culture as a church, that your concern should be greater than what the monolithic culture is, if that makes sense. It does. I think that what happens in situations like that, the assumption is, well, uh, people of color are making their own personal individual choices not to be here. <laughs> so again, it goes back to that very individualistic thinking that it's their choice. And if they wanted to come, they would. It's just not their preference without ever thinking a little deeper about culture. And I and, mean, I, I have a friend who's a person of color who called me yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very conservative politically, mm-hmm. a great guy who I love, but he was telling me growing up, he grew up in the South. The mm-hmm. town that he grew up in has a plaque at their park, one of their parks, oh, no. celebrating when the last black person moved out of town. Oh. And now it's safe here and we can have this park and let our children play freely, etc. And he said the plaque's still there. Uh, now, he's not black, uh, oh, but, uh, but you know, there's that too. And I right. think if that's the reason your church is all white, then you have some... You have some issues to consider just in your town there, right? And right. you can even say it's a sin issue, not a skin issue at that point. Like there's some sin to dig into there. Yeah. Ugh. I think the the other thing I say, especially to my pastor friends who bring this up, is um, you don't have to have people of color in your congregation or in your town to preach and teach being informed by voices of color. Yeah, yeah that's um, true. The the unfortunate reality is that the vast majority of our, especially our white pastors, but I'd say not even just our white pastors in the United States have received a, a theological training that is almost wholly white. And, and 
and male. Well, yeah, yeah, white and male. I'm not gender blind, but I think it was male. <laughs> Correct. Um, so when we talk about theology, uh, we will talk about black theology or Latin theology or Asian American theology, and then there's just theology, which is actually white theology, European what? theology. How do you see how, how does theology have color? I know, what? right? No. Do, is it possible that people who are black have a different perspective on how to read the Bible? What? Mm. Um, but but what I what I what I ask them is, you know, how many how, total in your life? How many books by theologians of color have you read? And of course, they're usually like, uh, I'm not sure, but probably fewer than five. Well, okay, Augustine. that's a problem. Right? <laughs> yeah, technically from Africa, right? Um, yep. So, uh, um, I think that's, that, uh, is a way, you know, who, what, what commentaries are you reading when you prepare your sermons, when you quote people in your sermons, who are you quoting when folks ask for books in your congregation, uh, who are you giving them? Do you have a church library? If so, if so, what books and, and who are on the shelves, uh, what curriculum are you providing with your small group leaders, or your Sunday school teachers? Um, there are all kinds of ways to build voices of color into your congregation, um, whether or not you have, you know, a 50% black community or something like that in your town. Are you, uh, are you holding black churches to the same, uh, the same sort of expectations <laughs> though, JR? Like black churches are segregated too. Yeah. So this goes back to, uh, this is something that Dr. King observed, you know, everyone's, uh, every yes. white person's favorite black preacher. Yes. Um, he, he famously observed Sunday, uh, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, which even that, obviously he's talking about white churches because black churches last way more than an hour. Right. Absolutely. So, Korean um, churches too. <laughs> all day. Um, and this is actually some. This was this was a big learning moment I had uh, a few years ago when I saw several. I think it was after. It might have been after Charleston, which today is the five year anniversary of the the day that the Charleston Nine were were killed. Um, and it was after that when people were saying, like, "What's you know, wh why why do we have black churches?" Uh, isn't that just as racist? Blah, 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 blah. And of course, again, if you go back into that past, we're not supposed to dwell in. Oh. We find out that <laughs> the, the reason there are black churches is because black people weren't allowed in white churches. Or if they were, they were forced to sit in the back or in the balcony or something like that, right? Segregated. And now uh, several anti-racist scholars that I've, that I've read talk about the difference between segregation and separation where segregation is enforced and separation is chosen. Um, and Kathy, I, I wonder if you might, you might speak to this better, but one of the, one of the, uh, one of the major statements that I heard from a number of voices of color about this was when you're a, when you're a minority voice in a majority culture, minority only spaces are necessary in order to really be able to be fully who you are. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's, there's so many layers. Um, if you think about, so yes, there's the segregation. And so historically black churches existed because they could not be a part of the white church because when they were enslaved, so they weren't fully human. 
All of that, right? And the Bible that they were given missed a few things. Things were torn out of those Bibles. And then history continues, and then there is that chosen separation to maintain traditions, maintain space, maintain a culture that the majority culture intentionally tries to strip away. It's called assimilation. Right. Mm. So America likes to say things like, we're a melting pot. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to be cheese that melts. <laughs> um, and, and the reality is when you think about that, um, assimilation can only go so far. Even though people are colorblind, I cannot shed my skin. I cannot shed my Asian features. I cannot shed those uh, things that are culturally bound. And um, so I would say Black churches are choosing separation, but also immigrant churches are choosing separation. So there's issues around language yeah. and access and being able to worship in your mother tongue without having to translate everything from English. So, you know, I've heard that too. Like, well, what about immigrant churches? Shouldn't they come to the white church? That way the white church becomes more diverse. And I'm like, no. <laughs> it, it's about, really good for our optics. Right. Well, yeah, you get much better photographs that way to put on your fancy websites. Um, but so very few white people would intentionally choose a non-white, non-majority culture church or place of worship, let alone choose a place that doesn't speak English as its primary language. Well, and, and I, I don't know, I, again, from this, my, mine is all secondhand, right? Because I, I can literally count on one hand the number of times I've been in a worship space that wasn't built around my preferences. Um, but from what I understand, it's 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 very different for someone of color to be in a space that is designed for their preferences, their culture, uh, and then again to be basically having a cross. Oh, uh, let me tell, let me say a story this way. I, I preached a sermon one time where I, I was challenging my, my congregation to be more, more multicultural. And I challenged them to, to intentionally engage in a cross-cultural experience sometime this week. And then later in that week, I was talking with um, one of my black congregants and she was talking about how their small group was discussing the sermon and asking what cross-cultural experience they were going to have this week. And she told them, every time I come to church or go to small group, it's a cross-cultural experience. Right. And they didn't understand what she meant. Mm -hmm. And and I, I like, honestly, that was kind of, that was one of those eye-opening moments for me where I recognized like, oh yeah, like there's a difference between multi-ethnic and multicultural and our church is white culturally, you know? So, right. um, right. yeah. And, it's from know, the like, music you play, what instruments are used, how long it goes, how long it goes, on time, what right. is on time, how right. early do you show up to pray? How many songs are sung? How do you sing those songs? Is there a women's Bible study Tuesday during the day? Yeah. 
where the male pastor leads. Yeah, Um, I've been there. And all of those things back up that culture. And yeah, I, I feel that. cultural expressions. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. And and for me, I, th- I, for a season, would enter into spaces where I was invited to speak about multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism. And I would say, I'm Korean-American. I'm not white. <laughs> and people would be like, what? <laughs> because for me, leaving my home every day is a cross-cultural experience. I'm I'm fluent in whiteness, but it isn't not it is not my primary cultural language. I've I've had to learn how to operate in that space, but at home, heck no. <laughs> yeah. But why so talk I, about any of this? <laughs> Aren't we just being divisive? <laughs> yeah. I mean, can't we all just get along? Uh, again, this blind. is a res- yeah. This is a response we see as I, I see it all the time on social media, but I see it in person as well. That when we when we bring up race issues, it leads to it leads to at minimum white people feeling uncomfortable, right? But most of the time, it leads to heated conversation, even argument, even broken relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, we can argue about how healthy those relationships were before, later. Yeah, it seems like every time we bring race up, it just causes division. <laughs> and shouldn't we be uh, shouldn't we be about unity? Isn't that what God calls us to? Yeah, I got this a lot with my conference I ran. You know that people would afterwards say, not just on this topic, but on multiple topics, be like, "Can't we just focus on the beauty of Jesus?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, but it apparently, it's not fixing anything." <laughs> like, that'd be great to change things well but again back somehow, that's back to the sin issue not a skin issue right yeah i mean yeah yeah that's exactly right they're like yeah if we could just focus on jesus but i'm like well apparently it's not transforming the bits like we're not seeing ourselves in the mirror clearly it's part of the problem so well and i the troublesome part of that response, right, is just to focus on Jesus, is that we also forget that in Jesus's time, where I dwell in the past, <laughs> he was offensive to religious leaders. His yeah. behavior was offensive. Yeah. And, and I, the struggle for me is that the gospel— the way it's preached or the way we talk about preaching it um, feels really nice if we're going to avoid talking about racism. (laughs) Yeah. Right? If we're going to avoid talking about why historically churches and communities are segregated, and yes, maybe that was in the past, but the patterns continue based on the foundations that were laid generations ago. You can't undo that, right? Like my house is built on a foundation. That foundation was built in the past. I can change or think about changing whatever is built on top, but I have to understand what this foundation was built on. And I think that idea of you're being divisive is 
actually funny because I think the gospel is supposed to be divisive. Well, like, I think yeah. the other thing is these things too, they're, they're expressions of harm and need, right? Yeah. Saying like, when yep. you do this, me and my community are being harmed. And then if the answer is then don't be so divisive, what we're saying is, yeah, but I'm fine. So why are you, why do you keep bringing up this uncomfortable thing? Right. And it, it, it can have, what is being communicated at a church at that point is don't rock the boat, right? Like if you don't like it here, there are other churches in town. There are other yep. places you could go. Um, so, so it's, it's, uh, and we even, we talked about that last week, even Kathy, the, the idea of like, there's a punishment uh, in there. Like we will remove community from mm-hmm. you if you keep saying that you are unhappy here. And that's abuse. Yes. Yes. Matt, what do you remember last October when we spoke at that men's retreat in California? Yes. And I hurt my knee and I had to limp around. Right. And you were saying like, Oh, I think it's fine. And I was like, I think you should get it checked. (laughs) Well, I went, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you've actually torn your ACL. And I was like, why did you hurt my knee? (laughs) (laughs) If we didn't run that test, my knee would be fine. Right. All seriousness, I think that's what's happening, right? When people when people say you're being divisive, uh, what we're saying, uh, Kathy, to your point, why why the why the gospel is divisive, is because the gospel shines light and lets us see the cracks in the foundation, right? The rot in mm-hmm. the wood, mm-hmm. uh, the wound in the body, and so it's not right. It you you can do whatever you want, but uh, blaming the light for showing you the wound isn't helpful to heal the wound. Well, and that's what, when someone comes to me with a harm that's being caused by my community or by me, I hope my response would be, thank you for bringing this to my attention, right? Like, it it takes some courage to do that a lot of times and to say, like, we're going to fix this. We're going to figure it out. Like, let me know more. What's happening? Like, and that's, that's why so many abuse things go undiscovered in the church is someone Mm -hmm. brings it up and they're like, Oh, but elder so-and-so has a family and I don't want to wreck that by saying he might have molested you. Right. Are you sure that's what he meant? (laughs) Um, so yeah. And I think an important point, an important point that I don't want to gloss over that you made there is for what I'll speak for white folks right now, me, um, when a person of color comes to me, and points out something that I am doing or something that I'm saying that is hurtful, that is racist, that is doing harm, that is a tremendous act of love on that person's part because, especially at this time and place, engaging what I hear, and Kathy, correct me if I'm wrong, engaging white people about race is exhausting. <laughs> yes, it is exhausting. Huh. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're right. It is uh it is an act of love and trust for me as a Korean American woman to engage with strangers on the interwebs or people I know and love. Uh it and that is what drives me, right? That is it, it actually is Jesus's love driving me to say, okay, I'm going to try one more round 
to engage in this because I value, you know, if it were you, JR, or you, Matt, I value our friendship. Yeah. And I think that it can be better. And so I, I think what is so harmful, oh, I can't speak, harmful and hurtful when that accusation is thrown, you're being divisive. Um, What I hear is, oh, you think this is a new thing. Mm -hmm. Like you said, JR, I'm pointing out this reality that I have always lived in. You say you love me, but you don't want to see this because you personally don't experience it. That's why so many people leave the church is that if you're comfortable, you can stay. (laughs) If that whole culture is built around your comfort, you get to stay and you always decide what's being divisive. Um, I will say, I have a, a, a good friend uh, who is black who confronted me about something that I wrote um, a few years ago, uh, probably about th- four years ago, maybe. Uh, and he said, this is disrespectful. It's wrong. Um, and it was like, it was agonizing for me to mm. hear that. And it, it honestly took a lot of willpower for me not to start throwing up ideological, I didn't know that they were ideological responses at the time. Right. But I was, I was throwing up responses, trying to defend myself, trying to um, make it okay because I felt so um, exposed and ashamed. Mm. Um, And it, our relationship was not great for a while after that because we both, we both were pretty raw and honestly, cause I didn't know how to respond. I mean, I apologized in the moment and I uh, made some plans for how to, how to be better and be different, but you know, you can't unring the bell. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it took a while for us to rebuild trust and for us to get back to a place where um, we were really close again. Um, but I'm so thankful that he loved me enough to call me out because he was a hundred percent right. And I learned, I mean, I learned a lot from that about how to be a better friend to him and hopefully how to be a better ally, uh, in general. Uh, and I think about, I think about the things that he called me on a lot anytime I write or speak about race. So it, it transformed me hopefully. Um, and, and again, our relationship is stronger now. Um, even though it took a while, but that's, that's what a real relationship looks like, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, I have a, I have a white friend who I've been riding with, who was telling me that they, uh, all of their black friends say, um, be, pr- be proud of your whiteness. Stop bringing up white, uh, white privilege. It's not a thing. And I wrote them back and I said, how many, how many black friends do you have? And they said, oh, like seven. And they all say the same thing. I was like, that's weird. So I'm like trying to figure it out. And I wrote one of my black friends and said, I can't even think of seven of my black friends who would say this. Like, is this a thing? And he was like, Oh yeah. I mean, maybe a couple of them think that, but they're, they're lying. 
because they, <laughs> they don't want to have the conversation. They don't think that person's ready. They don't think it's going to change anything. It's just going to rock the boat. And I was like, oh, that's, that's actually really horrible. Like I, and I'm guessing I have those places in my life, right? Where it's like, oh, Matt doesn't even know how screwed up he is. And it's not worth having a conversation. He can't hear it right now. Um, but it's disheartening to think that uh, your friends might, maybe I'm not providing a place for them to be honest enough about certain things. Um, yeah, I think that's hard. Um, there's a bunch of other things that we could go into about ideology. The one I'm seeing all the time right now is like, if you say anything about ethnicity or race, someone goes, Oh, that's critical race theory, um, <laughs> which is, is just, it, it's, it's, it's not a response. Even it's, it's essentially saying that's some sort of Marxist liberal thing and therefore not true, which is not, it's not a great argument. Um, but I, I guess I'm more interested with the amount of time we have left in how do we respond? What, what do we do when there's an ideological claim like this? What do we need to know? How do we, what do we do with it? You know, for me, the first question, okay. So because ideological responses are not a function of logic, they're claims of power. They're, they're trying to protect something, usually my white feelings, the first, th the first thing I have to decide is whether or not this is something I want to engage because the, what's going to have to happen is some careful and, um, some careful emotional labor. Uh, and that's going to take a lot of time. So <laughs> for me, a question is like, when do I engage this person or when do I simply say, Hey, these things that you're saying are not true and it's problematic and you know, because I, I, I don't anymore. I, I used to just leave comments lie and say, you know what, fine, let them have the last word, whatever, it's fine. And I don't do that anymore because I don't want, especially if it's on my own posts, I don't want people to look at me not engaging something. So if it's really something I don't have time to engage and I think it's problematic, I'll just delete it or hide it, right? Mm -hmm. But um, my yeah, the first question I, I ask is whether whether or not I'm even going to engage this or not, and that's purely a function for me of w what kind of emotional and time reserves I have right now since I don't have a quantum computer yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Kathy, what about you? Right, I know you 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 mentioned already that you you often say, "Well, let's give this one more one more run at this." Like, what? How do you make those decisions? Uh, I don't always make them well. Um, what I have learned, one, is that this is a long process. And so what I'm seeing in the last three weeks is that there are a bunch of new people to the conversation around race. So I would tell, and they're, you know, by and large white people who are fired up, I would urge them to see this as the long haul and a long journey. Yeah. Um, because while people love MLK now, white people did not like him when he yeah. was alive. Kind of like Jesus. Yeah, kind of like Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> we love him now. But if we had been alive, you know, in that past that we're not supposed to dwell on, would we have found his behavior offensive? And 
Um, so I tell my beloved white friends, uh, are you willing to lose friends and family over this? Because that's what might happen. That's what happens to people of color all the time. And so I come at it from a different place. I'm encouraging people of color. Like, we need to find the spaces where we can function outside of what is called the white gaze, right? Whether it's yeah. in your church, in your home, find a space. And how can you recharge and how do you pick the battles? Because this is not going to be won over a few weeks. This has been an ongoing systemic sin issue in society and culture and in this country since the beginning. Um, so think of it as not even a marathon. It's the ultra and also be very mindful to what God is doing in your heart, in your church community, in your family. I think um, don't enter into these conversations alone, whether you're white or a person of color. Um, who are you doing this work with? Who are you learning with? Who are you journeying with? That's really good, Kathy. Thank you for sharing that. What about you, Matt? Uh, I think for me, what I've discovered is that sharing my knowledge is less effective than guiding someone in self-discovery. Um, that I can lay out everything I know, and then it becomes an argument. Uh, you know, I'm like, well, what about these three things? Then they're like, well, what about these four things? Uh, whereas a, a careful question is often more effective uh, in, in, in a positive sense, not in a manipulative sense, not like a, oh, I'm going to sidestep you. Um, but I'll give you a non-racial example. So there uh, was in a conversation recently about police and how the police, police uh, and, and violence, like state approved violence, right? And do police actually need guns and all these things? And someone was saying, uh, you know, violence at traffic stops are one of the worst things, uh, and police officers are often killed, and they often kill motorists at those times. Uh, and, and there's no solution other than people having guns. And I just asked the question: uh, well, Could why could we not let them go? Like, why would you have to shoot someone to stop them if they've stolen a car? And it set off this whole conversation. Well, that's not just blah 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 blah. And then at the end of the conversation, so we kind of pushed on that. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, how do the British police stop a carjacker? They don't have guns, right? So I'm not having this big argument. I'm making them think it through, um, which, which is harder in some ways. It definitely takes more time. But whatever little aha moment they might have, even if it's small, it tends to grow into other aha moments instead of them just getting something I figured out. Um, so that's where, and I think we can do the same thing in issues of race for sure, uh, actually pretty easily. And I, the one I see people doing right now that is, is pretty similar, people saying like, it's inappropriate to do these kind of like riot level protests. 
<laughs> uh, and the question I'll see people ask is, what is the appropriate, what is the appropriate way to, uh, to protest? And then they, you, you can't find one because people didn't want people taking a knee. They didn't want you speaking up at different times. They don't want you protesting in various ways. The, the correct way is to say nothing. Um, so helping them come to that and go like, is that reasonable? What about freedom of speech? What do we do with this? And making them answer the question instead of me answering it. So. Yeah, well, I, I would I would say similar for me when when I decide I'm going to engage folks uh, again because I've come to recognize that ideologies are not a function of logic. I do the same kind of a thing. I ask questions, I guide, um, and it almost always happens for me in private messages. Uh, there was an <laughs> issue a number of weeks ago on my Facebook where a person that I've literally met once at like a work party um, came on and said some stuff that was racist and um i was engaging her and then a few other people i walled in she ended up deleting her comment uh her original comment and messaging me privately and saying i still you know um kind of coming at me and i said if you're if you want to have a discussion about this i'm interested um and then she kept kind of just like you know blasting away and i said again if you want to have a discussion i'm interested and she was like okay well how do we do that <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so then I, you know, I, I sort of started asking questions, doing the same kind of stuff Matt did. And, you know, she said something about how like now schools are, now schools are, um, are not segregated anymore. And I said, well, how would you measure that? Right? Like, uh, there's a law, but how do we measure if the law is being applied? And she was like, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, how, how would like, what, how would you start? And she started throwing out some ideas and I threw out some ideas, which are ways that we actually measure, like, for instance, do schools get equal uh, resources and all that kind of stuff. And then I just shared some statistics with it. I said, see, according to the metrics that we came up with together, it's not, you know, it's not really, or it is still segregated. And she was like, oh no. And then, you know, she brought up, you know, that black people like to live with black people. And so well, how would you measure that? How do we know if that's true or not? And I just kept doing those kinds of things. And then again, when she would, when she would think through the issue, Instead of just having the ideological response or saying, well, I've always kind of assumed it was like this, we should actually think through it. And I would actually kind of help her say, how, do you, how would we measure these things? Um, and then, then we would go looking for those, those answers together. And by the end of our conversation, again, she was like, wow, this is way more messed up than I thought it was. And she had very much come around to the position of the original post on Facebook. Um, but again, that was like a two day long conversation through private messenger. Right. I, over, I should over probably the mention too, and, and, the Jared knows this already. And I know Kathy knows this to some degree, the ability to have the conversation in this way is a, uh, is a function of our privilege. Yeah. JR. Mm -hmm. We're listened to in conversations. Uh, we're seen as people who, uh, pe people desire to know what we think, uh, partly just because of our whiteness and maleness, but also we both have varying degrees of authority in different realms. Uh, so, so, and, we have to be really careful with that because there are times where the appropriate thing to do is uh, there are people who are not looking for answers. They're not going to follow you with some questions and they're doing uh, immediate harm in your community and they need to just be shut down. And then you just yeah. say like, everything you just said is wrong. I see chair do this sometimes. He's like, Oh, that's a ra racist ideology. <laughs> like, and sometimes that's oh. the approach, not just appropriate, but the morally correct response. I had a guy come on that I didn't know. He, we had one mutual friend in common. He came on a post and 
it turned out he's like a South African white supremacist and started talking about all this stuff about how Jesus and the disciples were all white and all this kind of stuff. And I, Hmm. again, I initially started engaging him in that way. Well, how would you do this? And what would you do? And blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as he started, as soon as he showed his true colors, um, I, I immediately blocked him, deleted his comments and then put apology on the post. I said, everyone, I did not realize that this was someone who was again, just trafficking in racist white supremacist ideologies. Like I, I'm sorry. I should not let it go that far. Yeah. You know? yeah Cause yeah, exactly. nope. He was not there to listen. He was not there to engage and he, he was there to, he was there to recruit. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yikes. Shut it down. Yep. Yikes. So, um, yeah, I, this is this is a tricky this is a tricky issue, and I think because ideologies are not primarily logical because they rest on emotion, they often get they're often a reflex, right? They come up whenever people feel discomfortable, uh, discomfortable or threatened, uncomfortable. What's that word? Okay, uncomfortable. Um, yes, <laughs> or threatened. Um, and and so I think it's it's really it's really important. If we're going to engage them, which is not something that you have to do, I think it's perfectly okay to draw help, good self-care boundaries. Um, but if you're decide if you're going to decide to do that, uh, then then yeah, it's important to understand uh, some of the facets of this. So um, probably didn't solve it all in one episode, but we are going to uh, wrap it up for now. We'd love to hear uh, some of the ideological phrases that we missed that you hear repeated a lot. Uh, we'd also love to hear how you engage these issues, uh, especially if you found a, a handy dandy way to, to uh, pierce ideological claims more quickly than over days and years and months. <laughs> but uh, for now, I'd love to hear uh, Kathy, what's fascinating you this week. Okay, so I finished Itaewon class. I mentioned it last week, and it's better than I thought it would be. So oh, wow. I'm just throwing it out there. I really enjoyed it. Um, it it goes it touches on things I was very surprised. And this show ran at the beginning of the year, and so it's it's a recent K drama showing a little bit about what's going on culturally in Korea. So I was fascinated by it. Um, there are issues around who is a real Korean and transgender Interesting. character and um, marriage. I mean, it, it was so fascinating. So Itaewon class, love it. And mosquito abatement is fascinating me. Because I know because I live in the Midwest and I live in an area where our um, state bird is the mosquito. It isn't, but it feels like it. And I, so it's not just like in the community where here in the village, like there was mosquito abatement treatment last night, but Peter and I are on this frenzied search for ways to like protect ourselves from mosquitoes. And he just ordered a bunch of things like these rackets that are battery powered that you can swat, right? Like you, it fries. (laughs) Yes. I saw those on your Insta story. And I was like, what did you order? And I was like, oh my God. He's like walking around the yard looking for bugs. I'm like, that's not what you're supposed to do. Um, It is if you want to send a message. That I guess. (laughs) So it's been funny to watch him like come back. You guys need to buy some lizards. No, I mean we have lizards, but they don't eat mosquitoes. They eat crickets that we have to buy. Uh, anyway, 
Um, so mosquito abatement, and then we have these things that we plug in the like in the outlets now. I don't know if they really work. I feel like he's ordered something else, and I'm not really sure. Like something's going to show up, or he's going to go pick up something. Um, but yeah, mosquito abatement. That's what's wow. fascinating you. I know. How about you, Matt? Uh, you know, I was looking for, I just wanted to read a really good comic book and, and unwind a little bit. So I went into my, I have a little closet where I keep some of my comics. I went in there and I pulled out All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Gary Frank. The art is gorgeous. The story is really fun. It's kind of like a non-continuity Superman story. And uh-huh. it's all just like, it's kind of like... Superman at his most Superman-ish. He just always does the right thing. He's kind. Uh, you know, the bad guys aren't ever going to get the better of him, even when it looks like they are. Lex Luthor is horrible. And there's some, like, new characters that aren't in there. It's And Jimmy Olsen is delightful. He's, like, a complete disaster in the best way. Lois Lane is really interesting and fun. Like, everything about it is just a good time. And it's, uh, yeah, there was nothing... I think when Superman's there, you don't have to be stressed out about the world, you know? You're like, there are good people who are going to do good things, who have power. Um, So if you haven't read All-Star Superman and you like Superman at all, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's really fun. Mm. Yeah. You've read that, right, JR? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what's your your pick this week? Uh, Well, I'm going to do two. Um, So Spike Lee released a new film, which is always a cause for celebration. Uh, but he released it straight to Netflix, which I think was actually the plan even before COVID-19. So that's interesting in and of itself, but it's called the five bloods and it is a Vietnam slash heist film where the, the premise is uh, four black Vietnam veterans return to Vietnam in the present day to go find the body of their squad leader, I guess, um, who died in Vietnam. They buried him, but they buried him with gold that was shot down. It was gold from the U.S. to fund the South Vietnamese troops. It was shot down. And so they were going to say that when they got to the plane, the gold was gone, that the the Viet Cong had taken it, and then they were going to keep it for themselves. And so they buried it with their friend. So they're, 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 they are going to find their friend's body and bring his remains back to the U.S., but they're also trying to get this gold. And the whole thing is – it's got so much cool stuff going on cinematically, like the way Spike Lee jumps back and forth between uh, the Vietnam War and the present. Uh, like, like, for instance, this isn't a spoiler. It's just a really interesting thing. When, when it goes into flashback – the, the black actors who are playing the old men are also still playing themselves and they don't de-age them or anything. Oh. So, so, and then the frame rate changes from being widescreen to the, whatever the four by three. Um, and then the, the way that it's filmed, it looks like an old film. Uh-huh. So it's interesting because it, it has the quality of like, it, it very much seems like this is how they're remembering it. This, it, we're not meant to think that we're watching like what actually happened. If that mm. makes sense. That's cool. Um, and then there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of conversation about what it was like to be a black man fighting in the Vietnam War for a government that did not extend the rights for which they were fighting in Vietnam to the soldiers themselves. 
And uh, yeah, it's just, it's a great movie. It's complex. It's complicated. As all Spike Lee films are um, really, really good. My wife and I watched it uh, the night it came out and just, it's like, it's, it's a lot, but it's really good. It's funny. It's got good action in it. uh, And it'll leave you thinking. So that's Defy Bloods. It's on Netflix. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. The other thing, my wife and I are super into game shows right now, which I don't know why. Maybe it's, it's not, it can't be because that's all they're allowed to film. But the two that I specifically want to call out are Pressure Luck, which has come back in the newest incarnation of that, hosted by Elizabeth Banks. Super fun. They've updated it in all the right ways, and they've left it alone in all the right ways, which I love. And then also, have you all seen the game show Ultimate Tag? <laughs> no, I've never heard of it. It's brand new. I think there's only like four or five episodes out so far, but it's it's they literally just recruit people to play these like uh, beefed up games of tag. And then they have American Gladiator style. They have taggers who are, you know, accomplished athletes. They're like parkour, freestyle runner, um, Instagram, like fitness people that and they they all have like a persona that they adopt. So there's like rocket and horse and the viking and uh there's this guy named the flow who's a parkour expert who's amazing there's one named the geek who uh, it just it's amazing so it's it's got yeah yeah it's it's and they have the the runners have flags like flag football on their chests and on their backs and so when the taggers are trying to get them that's what they're trying to if they can get you and tear the tag off then then you're out or whatever there's whatever the penalty is but there's probably like four or five different versions of tag that they that they have created and it's it's got that perfect blend of like cheese and athletic ability that american gladiators had um so we just love it like it's it's totally mindless fun but super fun so yeah we've what there's like five other game shows we're watching right now but those are the two that we're probably enjoying the most so nice all right anything that anyone wants to promote this week I am actually creating a yoga space for women of color. Um, So uh, listeners, if you want to find it, you're going to have to hunt a little bit because I don't want to just blast it out in the air. So hunt around on my Facebook and uh, uh, it's just for women of color, free, um, Donation-based if you can, but you do not have to. And I've been doing it um, kind of informally for three weeks, and now we're just going to go ahead and do it every Monday night, 5 to 6 p.m. Central time. And it has been a sacred space for us. Mm, That's cool. That's awesome. Uh, I participated in Think Christian's second watch party on the Star Wars episode uh, for the original one, a new hope. And, uh, Michelle Reyes, friend of the podcast has, was on with me along with several of the other regular think Christian folks. We had a blast and it should be up on the think Christian podcast feed soon. So the way we do it is, um, the think Christian team, which I think there were seven of us watch the film together with an audience. And we basically do a running commentary on the film. And then there's a separate discussion afterwards for about 30 minutes. So usually they put the discussion up first and then they release the commentary track separately. If you want to watch it with us, but we had a blast that should be up anytime. Uh, they're working on it right now. So, um, yeah, we had fun. I don't know when we'll do another one, but hopefully soon. Awesome. And I keep wanting to do one of those with the fascinating podcast. Um, 
Hint, hint. If y'all one of these so, days, we'll we'll make it work. <laughs> All right, next week's show is going to be our season finale. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back, hopefully, with Clay in tow. But until then, we would love to hear uh, how you engage racial ideologies, uh, where you found hope, where you found resistance, what you would do if you could rewind time for 10 seconds, uh, all of those things. Uh, so please make sure you reach out at, on Twitter using the hashtag fascinating, uh, also at Facebook at facebook.com slash the fascinating podcast. And until we are back together again, take care of yourselves out there. Uh, stay home, quit touching your face, and uh, take care of each other.